Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. As we kick off season two of the podcast, we're going to dive into the research on an area that often brings fear to new parents, rightfully, that of SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. Most people will be aware of best sleep practices promoted by professionals. You know, put your baby to sleep on their back, no extra items in the sleeping area, and of course, no matter what you do, never ever sleep with your baby. But how well do these recommendations stand up to the actual research? What do we really know versus what we're being told? Joining me, again, is one of my favorite people and one who is out there changing the way we think about advice for SIDS through research and advocacy, the brilliant Dr. Helen Ball. Through her work at Durham University's Parent Infant Sleep Center, she's been helping professionals and families better understand the risks around SIDS and how we can best support families with evidence-based information. If you think you know the evidence behind sleep recommendations, you may need to think again. I am so very pleased to have back with me again for round number two, the wonderful Dr. Helen Ball. And if you, for some bizarre reason, do not know who she is. Uh, Dr. Ball is Professor of Anthropology and the Director of the Durham University's Parent-Infant Sleep Center. She pioneers the study of infant sleep and the parent-infant sleep relationship from a biosocial perspective. Broadly defined, her research examines sleep ecology, particularly of infants, young children, and their parents. Now, this encompasses attitudes and practices regarding infant sleep, behavioral and physiological monitoring of infants and their parents during sleep, infant sleep development, and the discordance between cultural sleep preferences and biological sleep needs. She is also the co-founder of the Baby Infant Sleep Information Source, otherwise known as BASIS, a website that provides research evidence about biologically normal infant sleep for both families and professionals. Thank you so much for coming back for round two. It's great to be here. I could talk to you every day for we could just do a whole season on what you've done. So we'll just tackle it one at a time, though. And I know last time you were on, we talked about that biologically normal infant sleep, what people Mm -hmm. expected. And we kind of glossed over today's topic, which is SIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a topic that I think is really important for a lot of families. It's a big concern when you have a new baby. What's It's probably one of the biggest concerns that people have. And before we talk about the research on it, risk factors, everything, how did this particular aspect of infant sleep become a central focus in your research, but not only that, but particularly your outreach with professionals and others? Well, I think really we started getting involved in SIDS research on the back of the bed sharing research that we'd done. And obviously, you know, bed sharing's a a kind of hot topic with regards to whether it increases the chance of SIDS and it does in some circumstances, but then it doesn't in all circumstances. And then, so what is it about it? How, How does SIDS fit into all of that bed sharing research? So that was kind of like what led me into, um, thinking more about, um, the things that parents do at night as well as bed sharing. So it was, you know, broadening out kind of what we were interested in, in the safe sleep kind of domain. Um, so that was what, that that was my entry point, I suppose, into SIDS research. But once we started thinking about what happens with regards to SIDS and how people understand safe sleep messages and how safe sleep messages are created and all the rest of it, it was very clear that there was a huge gap there in sort of social science 
research terms where people hadn't explored how different groups of people might be receiving those messages, how those messages might need to be delivered, uh, what people understood compared to what the public health professionals and the epidemiologists were intending. You know, there's kind of all sorts of ways in which those messages get misinterpreted, reinterpreted, implemented, not implemented, implemented in weird ways that you never expected. Um, so, so that was what interested us with SIDS and that's where our research has sort of gone. And, and, and with regards to the outreach work, it's sort of helping health professionals to understand what we've learned about how parents receive and implement those messages and what the barriers are to being able to implement those messages. Which is kind of leading right into what I wanted to start with, because it's true. I think, SIDS, there's so much misunderstanding um, on all levels by mm -hmm. a lot of not just parents, but from certain health professionals as well and researchers. And it's like there's it almost feels like everyone's talking about a different topic at times. Mm -hmm. If you talk to an epidemiologist about it versus a clinical researcher versus a family doctor versus a parent. Everybody's looking at it through a slightly different lens. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it, in turn, as you say, the messaging can get quite messy. And so with that, I, I want to start with the question of, you know, how do we even think about SIDS? Because I think that's part of the messaging issue that can come up. So what I mean is that we often think of SIDS almost like another disease or something like cancer or diabetes where we, we know what it is. We have ways to avoid it, prevent it, uh, reduce the risk. However, we want those terminologies too are all loaded as to how we mm -hmm. think about it. Um, so what is it that we know about it and how does that really affect the way well, I guess, as you put it so well, the messaging that comes across and even the research that can be done on it from mm -hmm. a epidemiological or even just you know clinical perspective well i think the the, the 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 biggest difficulty with regards to sids is although people talk about babies dying of sids there isn't a thing called sids that babies die of sids is a category of exclusion as you know um it's it's a category into which a death is assigned if no cause can be determined for it after a postmortem, after a death scene investigation, you know, whatever um, is deemed relevant to look into at the time. Um, if, if a coroner and a pathologist can't come up with um, a classification of, for death, it's put into the SIDS group. So it's basically an unexplained death. And one of the reasons why it all gets quite complicated is it's really difficult to determine if a death is explained or not um, because there are so many things that um, could possibly be a cause of death, but you have to have a kind of preponderance of evidence that that's what's happened. So things like soft suffocation are often conflated with SIDS and it's really difficult to kind of like distinguish between the two because there's no clear diagnostic criteria that would separate a soft suffocation if you didn't know you know if you know that somebody's held a pillow over a baby's face you can you know it's a soft suffocation but if a baby's died suddenly and unexpectedly it's really hard to tell whether it just died or whether 
something untoward happened or, you know, whether it suffocated deliberately, whether it suffocated accidentally, whether it had some kind of underlying illness that contributed to its death. So, so there are various categories that such deaths can get assigned to, such as unascertained or unexplained or SIDS or, you know, or one of the larger SUDI categories if somebody thinks that there might have been a contributing factor. So, for instance, bed sharing deaths sometimes get put into accidental suffocation while bed sharing. And that makes collecting statistics on all of these things particularly difficult because there's no single category that you can kind of count. And it also makes coming up with prevention messages quite difficult because there's no thing you're trying to target. You're trying to help parents understand what's associated with babies dying, but you can't say for definite avoiding these things are going to save your baby or protect your baby. I have a question about something you just mentioned there about bed sharing. If bed sharing is in play, it is often then put under accidental suffocation. Now, is that happening in the absence of other evidence that it would be suffocation? Is bed sharing the factor leading to that Sometimes in some places for some coroners or some pathologists, if a baby was in a situation where it might have suffocated, then they won't call it SIDS because they say there's a potential explanation there. So whether it's whether it's on a soft surface or whether it's bed sharing or whatever, you know, and some some pathologists will say it definitely there definitely has to be evidence that it was overlaid for it to be a bed sharing death. And as others will say, the fact that it was in the bed is enough to call it a bed sharing death. So what does that do to the research? Because <laughs> it's incredibly messy. <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, we do look at these numbers and I've seen people pull out numbers of accidental suffocation while bed sharing. Well, if bed sharing is for people, the factor that determines you go into that category, you're looking at a tautology. You're not looking mm -hmm. at yeah. actual research on it. This is this is one of the flaws with some of those types of research where basically it's a series of case studies and those case studies just happen to be pulled out of the records on the basis of whatever the classification of death was or something like that. So in most of the case control studies that look at, that try to determine the risk factors, there is usually um, an intensive review of each death that is considered a SIDS death to determine whether it really was unexplained or whether it should go in that broader category of SUDI, in which case it should be excluded from a study that's just looking at SIDS. Okay, I'm going to get to that because that is okay. actually a whole big issue of how we're doing research. But I want to bring us back because in understanding what we're talking about, Sid. So we've been clear we're talking about its exclusion. It is mm -hmm. unknown. It's everything. But we do have guidance for families mm -hmm. based on risk factors, et cetera. And I know the most prominent, at least, well, you can correct me. Last I checked, the most prominent idea was the triple risk model mm -hmm. for Sid. Yeah. And yeah. can you clarify for people what that involves and how we are conceptualizing risk for SIDS using this triple risk model? Yep. Okay. So the way in which epidemiologists work out whether a baby is at risk or what risk factors are is by doing case control studies. And that is where you compare a whole 
a bunch of babies who have died with a matched bunch of babies who haven't died. And you try to figure out what happened to the babies that died that didn't happen to the babies that didn't die. So what, what were the babies who died exposed to either immediately in the sleep environment or previously in the weeks and months uh, before their deaths? Um, and risk factors, therefore, are, are worked out on the basis of kind of what is the what is the increased rate of death when you've got a baby on its front compared to a baby on its back or, a, you know, a baby whose parents smoked versus a baby whose parents didn't smoke. So when people have done, you know, they've done many, many case control studies now over the last 30 odd years looking at these things. And um, the triple risk model puts all of those factors that have emerged into three groups, three overlapping groups. And those are intrinsic risks. That is things babies are born with that increase their risk. They are the critical developmental period, which is identified on, on the basis of the fact that the vast majority of babies who die, die between two to four months of age. And then the extrinsic risks, which are the modifiable things in the baby's sleep environment that parents might be able to alter. And you have to have, according to the triple risk model, all of those things happening simultaneously. So you have to have a vulnerable baby who's in its critical developmental period, who is exposed to a, an external risk, which is like a physiological stressor. It's overheated. It's been placed prone. It's had its head covered, one of those kinds of things. Um, they all have to happen at the same time for a baby to die. You can have a non-vulnerable baby who is exposed to a whole load of uh, physiological stressors during its critical developmental period and it won't die because it's not got an underlying vulnerability. Um, and you can have a vulnerable baby and you can avoid all of those external stressors and it won't die. So it's like it's got to be this perfect storm that happens um, with all of these things coming together on a particular night. So what SIDS reduction advice tries to do is warn parents who, which are the vulnerable babies, which we can do for some of the things we know about. Well, we know about quite a lot of the things, but they're not all visible when you look at your baby. So, you know, if you've got a premature baby, a low birth weight baby, your baby's been smoke exposed in utero, you know those things increase its vulnerability. But there are also things like genetic predispositions, brain stem anomalies, all that kind of thing that you can't, you can only find on a postmortem or, you know, through some kind of pathological testing. So we have to advise all families about these things because we can't identify which babies are more, most vulnerable. And then we can tell parents which things are known to have increased the risk. So that's why we advise about sleep position, about head covering, about overheating, about um, bed sharing under some circumstances or all bed sharing, depending on what country you're in um, and things like that. So just to, to add for parents here, I think it's important to kind of highlight here that we are talking about a reduction in risk. It's not an absolute. So you no. could still have people that avoid, even in the triple risk models, seem to avoid all those things but their baby dies of SIDS 
regardless. Well, and their baby's death is categorized as sensory. Is categorized. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't. So I think it's really hard because I think people want that messaging answer of I am eliminating mm-hmm. all risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also then the judgment. And this is, I mean, I'm jumping ahead because we'll get there. But then the judgment that comes if you decide to take on some of that risk for mm-hmm. whatever reason later on. But it is a relative risk reduction. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, in some cases, if your baby is not vulnerable, which of course you can't necessarily know, you could do all those things and not have any risk at all. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could have a very at-risk baby where even some small little bit of mm-hmm. risk could be enough to yeah. kind of tip it over the edge there. It's where mm-hmm. kind of that edge your baby is. So, yeah. okay. So going back to the research, which I kind of jumped ahead to a bit before, because now that we understand we're talking about the absence, we're talking about these risk factors. And it's these modifiable risk factors that are what are coming out in the public messaging. Mm -hmm. But the type of research, you mentioned case control studies and already hinted at some of the problems depending on how they're categorized. If bed sharing is immediately something that goes towards accidental suffocation, Mm -hmm. how accurate is that? How does the type of research that is done into these risk factors, how does that type of research being case control studies, which is what we have, what mm-hmm. are the implications for the quality of the research and the answers we get for the research um, that then basically informs the messaging? The, the quality of the research entirely depends on the questions that the epidemiologists choose to ask of the parents and the way in which they categorize the um, data that they get. So, you know, if somebody is, is not asking about a particular feature of the sleep environment or about a particular um, exposure that the baby had prior to the night that it died, it's not going to come up in the case control study. They've got to, you know, they've got to, they've, somebody's got to have thought about it and asked about it. So, you know, in a, an example is in the very first sets of bed sharing studies, um, what came out very clearly was this association between bed sharing and smoking greatly increasing the risk. Subsequent studies have demonstrated that even more than smoking, drugs and alcohol consumption increase the risk. But for the longest time, nobody was asking parents about drugs and alcohol consumption. So it wasn't being flagged up. So it was just assumed that all bed sharing was risky because some people did it in in the context of drugs and alcohol. And that wasn't being pulled out of the data. Well, and even the way they ask questions, I remember one of the earlier studies that I looked at just asked their alcohol question, which came up as non-significant at all, was that had you had a drink in the previous 24 hours? And it was a yes or no. And -hmm. I just thought, you know, the mom who's had a beer at lunch is probably not at risk and you're lumping everyone Mm -hmm. together because of of the way you're asking that question. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like the the recent um, meta-analysis of of breastfeeding and SIDS. And breastfeeding has been found, obviously, to be associated with a lower, a reduced risk of SIDS, which means formula feeding is associated with an increased risk of SIDS. But in the recent meta-analysis, they didn't find um, a association with the baby being breastfed for less than two months. But less than two months is a catch-all category for any baby 
who ever had one breastfeed all the way up to was fully breastfed for two months. And so, you know, because the effect then is going to get diluted by all of those babies who just had one breastfeed, you know, say, saying that it doesn't matter. You know, you've got, you've got to breastfeed your baby for at least two months for it to make a difference. That's not actually what it's saying. It's saying there's this, there's this group of babies at the beginning here who are having all sorts of variable experiences and we've just lumped them all together and called them breastfed for less than two months. And that's, I mean, we could get into this on a whole other topic on all breastfeeding research, how mm-hmm. much they've just lumped things together with ever breastfed and then exclusively when there's a whole range in between that, mm-hmm. you know, is getting mm-hmm. muddied because we're not actually getting that. But so we have, you know, there's the researcher questions. Are they asking the right ones? Mm-hmm. Are they, how are they asking it as to how yeah. it goes in? Yeah. Is there... And I have to ask, because maybe it's just me, but I'm always hesitant when a lot is coming back to parental report. And maybe mm-hmm. this goes as to how you ask and yeah. how open you can get people to be. But it seems the more we delve into talking to parents about, especially things that have a bit of a stigma against it, are you bed sharing? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. answers might not always be as accurate as or honest. truthful. Accurate, yeah. <laughs> As it might be. And I don't know if we've ever looked at that in this research as to how much that might be playing a role in in what we see. Well, this this was really where we started with our research, where bed sharing and SIDS started to kind of intersect, was we um, discovered in doing interview surveys with parents that if you asked the bed sharing questions in a certain way, you got one answer. And if you ask them in another way, you got a different answer. And, you know, that was, you know, one of our first publications was about pointing out that the way in which researchers ask these questions is going to affect the prevalence that you see of a particular behavior in the non-death um, population or the non-death sample in your case control study. Um, and that affects the risk factors because, you know, it, that, that's the... That's the denominator of everything. So, you know, your your families whose baby has died get grilled, you know, by all and sundry about everything that happened. And it's very difficult for them to kind of um, hide something that might have gone on. However, the families who are your control families, A, don't have to participate in the first place. They can say no. So if they're doing something that they think somebody's going to frown about, they might refused to take part in the first place. And then secondly, they never knew that they had to remember everything that happened on the night the other family's baby died. So their recall of that night is likely to be less than. So what you tend to get is generalities. Um, So they tell you what usually happens as opposed to what happened on that specific night. Um, And then, of course, you know, they're interviewed sometimes as much as six months after the time that the interviewers are asking them questions about. So their recall is going to be, you know. Um, so if you ask them, you know, in, certainly in the UK, if you ask parents if they bed share, they often say no, because in their mind, bed sharing is something that other people do if they sleep with their babies all night, every night. But if you ask them if they've ever brought their baby into bed, they often say yes, 
because everybody brings their baby into bed sometimes to comfort them and falls asleep occasionally, but that isn't bed sharing. Even though that is bed sharing to them, it isn't bed sharing because they're not bed sharers because bed sharers are like this, not like this. We had that exact same situation with family friends when my daughter was young who, you know, we had, yep, we bed share. Oh, no, we do not do that at all. We we do not bed share. That is not something we do. Same conversation hours or so later comes up that their daughter joins them in bed halfway through the night every single night. She's either where the baby's supposed but- to start, supposed to sleep. They don't bed share because the baby's got a cot and that's where they're supposed to sleep. Or it's the fact that it happens occasionally and they don't count it because it's exactly. just occasional. Mm. Yeah. And that was what we had because I just sat there. I was like, but you're just describing bed sharing. That That's what it is, is she's, mm-hmm. she's getting mm-hmm. into bed with you. And but that mentality was such that, no, that was not something that was happening mm-hmm. because it was, I guess, yes, we were the other and they yeah. were not like us. We are not like you. We do it differently. Yeah. And yeah. that was <laughs> how it goes, which is fascinating. It's, so it's, It is a lot about I mean, stigma and about judgment and, yeah, and about guilt and all sorts of things. Yeah. And so do we see it all different? I mean, do we wonder, are the rates that we see different depending on the, the country of study because of either how acceptable or unacceptable bed sharing is in these case controlled studies? It does seem to, I mean, it does seem to vary quite. Um, in, it's interesting. In prevalence studies, the, the prevalence of bed sharing doesn't seem to vary quite as much. There are lots of studies that find that somewhere between 40 and 60% of families are bringing their baby into bed at least some of the time. Um, but in the case control studies, it does seem to be hugely variable. And I've always thought that it was to do with the way in which the, the data were being collected. It was... You know, it's, it's what the parents are being asked and the way it's being defined. Yeah. Do parents in these studies know they're taking part in a SIDS study when they're being asked Usually, about going back? yes. In case control studies, they do. Yeah. yeah. And would that at all affect how they feel about answering some of these questions? I don't know. It's, um, they'd have to be... I don't think most families really understand what case control studies entail. You know, it's quite a complicated research design. Um, So I don't know whether it would affect how they were answering the questions. Um, It might, it might be more, what might be more salient is who's asking them the questions. Um, So in some cases it's researchers, but in other cases it's health professionals and I think parents respond differently to health professionals about some of these things than they do about researchers. We 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 found that parents would say things to us like, well, I wouldn't tell my health visitor, but I'll tell you because you're just researchers. You know, you're not going to tell me off. It's not going to go in my medical notes or anything. But, you know, they, they do what parents do worry about what the implications might be of confessing something that is considered to be um, a bit suspicious or suspect. I, I see that with families all the time. They talk about, well, I, I never tell my my family doctor this, and mm-hmm. I would never. Would they ask? I say my baby's in their crib every night. That's what it mm-hmm. is, and they mm-hmm. don't need to know yeah. any different. Which, yeah. of course, you know, goes back to that messaging that if the message is this is really negative. Um, so we have this research. 
it's, uh, I think, hopefully pretty clear, somewhat questionable, I think, as to what's we've got. Um, and two, uh, we've talked about more and we'll talk about some of the others, but generally there are two main recommendations that seem to come up, at least here in North America. When you ask mm. about SIDS, people talk about two things, really. They talk about sleeping prone, so having babies lie on their stomach, and they talk about bed sharing. Mm -hmm. And it's like almost everything else kind of gets ignored or, mm. or put away. There's not a lot that really comes out of that. So when we think about those two factors, how strong is the evidence to suggest that each of them is actually a good reducing risk recommendation? Well, the, the most evidence exists for the prone sleep position or the non-supine sleep position. So I suppose it, it began with babies put down on their fronts or at increased risk, but as research got more and more um, nuanced around that question, it became clear that anything that's not the supine position is actually a risk. So, um, and if you look at if you look at the cumulative data over time for um, the prone position, then it's clear that almost every case control study has found the prone position to be a, a risk, um, and the odds ratio is something like four times um, the risk of not being put down prone. So, you know, it's, it's pretty robust because there's been so much data about it. For bed sharing, it's a lot less robust because studies have been all over the place in terms of, you know, some have found very, very increased um, risk factors and some have found no increased risk factors. And then when people have dug into it, it's like, well, bed sharing with this is really risky, but without that, it's we can't find any evidence that it is risky at all. So I think it's because sleep position is a, a quite um, an easy, um, an easy. It's not binary because it's sort of the three different options, aren't there? There's, there's prone, supine, and 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 on the side. But it's there's not very many variations of it, if you like. Um, whereas with bed sharing, it can be done in so many different kinds of permutations with and without very hazardous things by different people, you know, under different circumstances, that trying to tease apart what makes it risky and what doesn't has been quite difficult. And for some people, it's just easier to say, don't do any of it. So, so, so some people will say, that the evidence around bed sharing is as robust as the evidence around prone sleep position, but I don't agree with that position. I think it's much more, it's much more dodgy. It's much less substantial in terms of the number of studies that have been done, the consistency of the outcomes of those studies, and the way in which it's been unpicked. I want to go back to the the sleeping position. So you kind of hinted at it. You said more evidence is coming out that it really is anything outside of supine, so the back sleeping. It, I struggle with that because of side sleeping. And the mm. reason I struggle with side sleeping is it may not be side sleeping on its own because um, I, I could imagine side sleeping in a cot by a baby self would be more likely to roll onto the stomach or something to happen there. But having bed shared with both my kids and breastfed them mm -hmm. throughout the night they basically lived on their side 
close to the boob and that was, you know, how, how that happened. And that seemed to be quite natural for them. It wasn't me mm-hmm. putting them on their side. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. the movement to get towards that, I think is a very normal position to sleep with your baby with them at, at the breast level. So have they disentangled that type of side sleeping where it may be linked to breastfeeding, which we know reduces the risk of, of mm-hmm. or just maybe the baseline risk um, versus side sleeping in a, when a baby is on their own and that may mm-hmm. lead more to. Yeah, no, they haven't disentangled that at all, but the vast majority of those studies have studied babies who were alone in their cots. So they're talking about side, you know, they're talking about unsupported side sleeping, not next to a mother. Um, okay. So the, so. The, the, the risk seems to be, that the baby is put down on its side, but it ends up being found on its front. And I could see that. That makes sense to me because if they're on their side, the chance of kind of falling either way may be, you know, greater. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. a baby who's up against mom, you're almost not mm-hmm. falling. They're falling into the breast as opposed yeah. to actually falling yeah. onto their stomach, um, which is going to have that. So it feels again like all these nuances are the new things that need to be looked at yeah. in terms yeah. of disentangling these risks about even, you know, what we take as the most basic of, of prone sleeping. Um, so but it's highly unlikely that they ever will get untangled because the number of babies who die in those circumstances that we're interested in are now so small that to get a large enough cohort for a case control study is going to be practically impossible. Does that suggest to you that was it always going to be that way because there weren't enough people in that position where that's happening? Or do you see a decline in rates of breast sleeping, so to speak? No, I don't think we see a decline in the rates of breast sleeping. It's because people avoid the nap. People now avoid the most hazardous circumstances so babies aren't dying in that situation in in the in the numbers that they were previously. Okay. Which makes sense. And and that's good. Obviously. Yeah, very very is. good. Less dead it's babies good, is always a good research because we can't answer some of these questions now. Yeah. And but with your educated a highly educated hypothesis on this. Do you think there is a distinction between that breast sleeping relationship where a baby is on their side, side sleeping relative to on their own? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely yeah. do. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's always the risk for a small baby that can't defend its airways that sleeping on its side and falling into its mother's breast is going to be a suffocation hazard. So that's why parents are advised to push their babies gently onto their backs once they've finished breastfeeding if the parent is awake and aware that the, you know the baby's finished breastfeeding and they're not always um but you know once the baby is about three months old and it's got good neck control and it can move its head out of the way um they're a lot less susceptible to that yeah so you know there's the jury is still out about this baby's under 3 months thing and whether there are increased risk of in the bed sharing environment and it seems like some studies find they are and some studies find they aren't and yeah and of course the bed sharing environment is so variable like you said what kind of mattresses all these different things mm-hmm. to try and really hone in would be very difficult yeah. um So I want to ask about these other factors now. So we have these two that really have been the dominant ones, one which 
as you pointed out, that prone sleeping has a preponderance of evidence for it and bed sharing, which is far more wishy-washy, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. But there are other factors that you've already hinted to, like formula feeding, um, babies sleeping in their own room, which mm-hmm. was a common practice for ages. And why are these factors not given the same attention that bed sharing is? If we look at the, the research on bed sharing and can say it's wishy-washy, mm-hmm. why is there not the public health messaging around formula feeding around sleeping in their own room. I feel like, you know, in, in social media circles, some of these things get brought up and the number of families that have no idea that the guidelines are not Mm. to have your baby in a separate room is Mm -hmm. shocking to me that this Mm -hmm. is not a piece of advice that's still given to parents. That whole notion of the nursery is as commonplace. In North America, that's a big deal. It's not as big a deal over here because parents, pretty much all keep their babies in their bedrooms for the first few months. Not, I mean, the guidance here is to six months and not everybody keeps them into six months. Some parents, in our studies, we've found that parents tend to start moving their babies out of their bedroom around three months if they think that their babies are starting to sleep a bit longer and they want to encourage them to start sleeping through the night. They want to put them in that quiet, silent environment, not realizing that that quiet, silent environment is actually contributing to reduced arousal and which affects SIDS and all the rest of it. Um, but, But they do, they have at least got the message here that keeping your baby in your bedroom for the first few months is really important. In the, in the States, and I don't know what your guidance is specifically in Canada, but in the States, it's to keep your baby in your room for a year, which, you know, is harder. That's even longer. Um, and I think I think parents, you know, the cultural idea of getting their babies to be independent as early as possible and therefore to be able to move them into their own room and you've been sold on the, you know, by the... Um, baby furniture manufacturers this idea that you have to purchase all of this you know really stylish stuff and create this lovely gorgeous nursery so you want to get your you've made it for your baby you want to get them in there so that it it feels right to you to have your baby in you know why would they be selling it all if it wasn't you know the right thing to be doing so I think some messages are a harder sell because of the cultural environment you're trying to sell them in um so you know i think the the guidance exists certainly in in the uk our safer sleep guidance that was produced in 2019 you know keeping the baby where you are is one of the key we have six messages and that's one of the key six messages um what we had previously found is that parents had got the message about sleeping their baby in in the same room as them at night but hadn't quite extrapolated that to where the baby slept during the daytime. And the message actually was confusing because it said the safest place for your baby to sleep is in a cot by your bed. So that meant during the daytime, upstairs they went in a cot by the parents, empty bed, while mom was downstairs getting on with her chores. So we've changed that now to say the baby is is the safest place well, we don't say the safest place. We just say keep the baby in the room where you are for all sleeps. So I love that. Like there's something clearer. magical about your bed that will keep mm-hmm. the baby. Exactly. <laughs> it must be exactly. next to my the bed. Your empty bed. Yeah. Yes, the empty bed holds magical powers and that's <laughs> what's there. Um, 
but you know, I think you touched on when you talked about the the manufacturing of of cribs and all this stuff that we want to buy. It feels like a similar thing with formula mm-hmm. that we're not touching messages that affect economic factors. There are businesses, and that is, I mean, especially in North America, corporate America. Mm-hmm. We don't want to mess yeah. with them, so those messages kind of get get downplayed. And I, I know. In mm-hmm. Canada, we do have similar guidance. Uh, they're supposed to stay in the room to a year. The issue is that that guidance is official, but it's not really translating to families. Um, many don't know this. That's not something that's coming out. And I'm actually shocked how many times I talk to families whose doctors actually actively counter it. Mm-hmm. Um, whose family doctors should know this, but say, no, 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 no. You got to get them in their own room. That's what mm-hmm. you have to do. And that is what's best. And don't worry about it. They'll be fine. Get them in there and get them independent. And this is, again, going back to that mixed messaging that people get from, depending on who they're listening to, mm-hmm. is it the mm-hmm. epidemiologist? Is it your family doctor? Is it yeah. Mary Jane down the street who's giving you what worked for her kids mm-hmm. um, as it goes? But, you know, these other ones, What when we think about the preponderance of evidence for things like formula feeding or sleeping in their own room. How does that compare to the research on bed sharing? Like when we talk about the the strength of of findings, is it as wishy-washy? Is it stronger? Is it weaker? What? So the next, I suppose the next strongest evidence after the, um, the prone sleep position is smoking actually is you know, the baby's exposure to, to cigarette smoke, whether that's in utero or postnatally. Um, but, you know, the, the, in terms of the number of studies and the, the robustness of the studies um, smoking. Um, and then things like some of the intrinsic things like prematurity and low birth weight also kind of come fairly high on the list in terms of every case control study finds that premature or low birth weight babies are at risk. Um, but some of the other things, um, I mean, breastfeeding is an interesting one, or formula feeding is an interesting one because um, the, the people have known for a long time that breastfed babies have a lower chance of SIDS, but the message has been watered down to say things like breastfeed if you can, because people don't want to avoid putting that pressure on parents to say, well, if you, if you, you know, you, you're going to kill your baby and it's your own fault if you can't breastfeed, and, you know. So people, people have, you know, kind of like pulled their punches in terms of, of telling parents about breastfeeding, reducing the risk. Other things like soft surfaces and overheating, um, they're a lot more unclear. So kind of like bed sharing, there's a lot, there's, there are many more permutations of things that can happen with soft surfaces and, and overheating and head covering and all of this kind of stuff. So again, the studies have looked at it in lots of different ways. So there's not as many of them with as clear cut data. Is it, is it being on a beanbag? Is it being on a pillow? Is it having crib bumpers? Is it having a duvet in your cot? Is it, you know, is it having adult bedding on you or is it, is it having um, wearing a hat or, you know, there's so many different ways in which you can look at overheating and soft surfaces and all of that stuff that um, it's very difficult to say precisely which things are the things that increase the risk. So that's why people go down the route of just saying 
a clear flat surface. That's our current guidance, a clear flat surface. Um, soft toys, that's another thing, you know. So people will say, well, does it matter if he just has a little tiny teddy bear? Well, probably it doesn't matter. You can't really kind of like create a huge physiological challenge to a baby with a little tiny teddy bear. But somebody will go, I can have a teddy bear and put a great, bloody great big one in the crib, you know. Exactly. So, um, you've got to, you, you have to, you, you have to sometimes try to eliminate the stupid things people will do by having a really um, draconian message. And I think that kind of gets at the issue. First, I just want to address when you mentioned the two breastfeeding messages, it is amazing to me that we've lost that gray area in between, that it is truly people kind of go from, we either have to ignore it entirely or else you're saying you're going to kill your baby. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there's there's a whole host of, of answers mm -hmm. in between mm -hmm. that could be yeah. valid that allow for further discussion. Even if it's just, you can't or you're choosing not to breastfeed, you just need to be aware that that's oh. an increased mm -hmm. risk. And so maybe be more aware of these other risk factors that might mm -hmm. come into play. You know, that mm -hmm. is how it goes it's not and it's funny to me because we seem to not we don't want to say anything about breastfeeding but we also don't we, we might give the message you're going to kill your baby with breastfeeding but people who smoke aren't given that same hard line message mm -hmm. which is frankly probably a lot more modifiable mm -hmm. than someone who you know breastfeeding is is less necessarily modifiable if there are physiological factors at play mm -hmm. smoke you know, there's support, you can quit. And that can have a profound impact on on your infant's well being. Um, before I move on to the question that I, I have about kind of the the messaging and how we we value this, especially with with bed sharing at a practical level, I have to ask, because it blew my mind when you brought it up. Um, the National Institute for the Center of Excellence, I think it is, is that the right acronym? For excellence, yeah. Yes. Okay, in the UK, has done a review of the, the quality of research on bed sharing, mm -hmm. the case studies of the link between bed sharing and SIDS. Yeah. And what did they find? Like, are, cause this is a, a, like for those that are outside of the UK, can you share like what is nice um, in terms of, should we listen to them relative mm -hmm. to someone else? And what is it that they did find here? Okay. So, so the national Institute for health and care excellence is like a government quango in um in the uk it's a it's a a body that was set up to advise the nhs and health professionals on anything to do with health and care um, um kind of what is the best evidence um what what should they what should what what treatment options should they pers be pursuing for people with different conditions um and so in 2013 they were asked to look at the guidance around co-sleeping and SIDS. It was after a particular case control study had been published that had gotten an awful lot of press. And um, I think somebody in the House of Commons said, is, is nice going to kind of like look into this? So they did. Um, and what they do is they have their own independent statisticians so they don't involve people who've been involved in doing any of the studies. And they collect all of the international studies and they look at the data and then they grade each of the studies kind of in terms of its quality. Um, and case control studies in the first place are considered 
low quality on the scale of medical evidence because they're subject to all sorts of biases to do with recall and and who who can be enrolled and and take part in the kind of control families and all of that kind of stuff so you know the gold standards are kind of meta analyses of multiple randomized control trials and you can't do randomized control trials on SIDS because you would be asking people to put their babies in conditions that we know increase their chance of dying just to see if more of them die. So, you know, we have to go with case control studies, but they're low quality on the scale of medical evidence. And then on top of that, um, when the statisticians at NICE reviewed the studies that had been done, they downgraded them, each one, on different criteria um, for not being conducted robustly. So they downgraded them for not providing a proper definition of what they meant by bed sharing or for not conducting the interviews with the control families within a reasonable time limit after the um, first baby died or you know there were lots of different ways in which they um, scrutinized the way in which the the studies had been done and they came to the conclusion that all of them were such low quality evidence that you couldn't actually come to a conclusion that co-sleeping causes SIDS on the basis of them. There were far, there were too many problems with, with each of the studies. So they said um, there's, there's the, the strongest evidence is that smoking might increase the risk of SIDS in the context of bed sharing. And there's some evidence that people whose babies are premature and low birth weight or who dr take drugs and, and alcohol and bed share should be warned that that could increase the risk. And that's it. That was all they could kind of come up with. They didn't even come up with sofas, which we now talk about as being one of the biggest risks because there were just too few studies that had ever separated the sleep surface that was designed, that was talked about as the bed sharing surface. So they didn't know whether they were beds or sofas or chairs or camp beds or air beds or, you know, whatever. Um, so, so that was that was that was the beginning of the turning point, really, in the UK when the advice started to become: don't tell parents just to not bed share. Give them this information and let them make their own choices because it's not strong enough to tell them what to do. Which is amazing because with that, you know, it's that's still not the message over in North America. You still right. get that strong message. And, and people will adamantly tell you, especially people who think they know a lot about science, will come out with the, nope, it is evidence-based. And we know mm -hmm. beyond a shadow of a doubt that mm -hmm. bed sharing causes SIDS. And that's always the other word that I think parents hear that gets yeah. them very worried is this causes, is you are actually actively doing something that is going to... Make harm your baby, your baby yeah. irreparably mm -hmm. um, as we go. So this kind of brings us to the practical issues. So we have this evidence that is not really good evidence um, linking SIDS and bed sharing. Um, but you, as we talked about last time, have covered in depth how normal it is for mothers and babies to bed share for mm -hmm. many reasons, notwithstanding that moms also get a lot more sleep in general when they are bed sharing. So it improves their mood, everything else that they have to do. So at a practical level, how does the advice against bed sharing affect that relationship? Because you've looked at that in some people. How do they navigate something that is quite biologically normal and something that may work really well for them with 
this guidance that's telling them don't do this. And especially mm-hmm. the, they don't talk about it in terms of risk reduction, right? It really is spoken about in terms of absolutes that mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. you do this, you're going to kill your baby, um, which is kind of the messaging that a lot of people bring out. So how does that affect that maternal infant relationship and other elements like, you know, how mom sleeps, how she thinks about that? What, what have you seen in that? Regard. I think I think for some mothers it, it it's a really um, traumatizing thing to be told um, because it's the thing that works for them um, it's the it's the only way in which they're coping and then when they're told that they absolutely must not do it or they'll kill their baby it's kind of like precipitates a crisis because what else are they going to do you know um, they can't imagine getting up five or six times a night to go and feed their baby and, and um, you know, put them back in a cot to sleep. And a lot of times these are babies who have always slept in close proximity to their mum. So trying to then separate a baby for who, who's only known that environment and, and expect it to be comfortable and feel secure and, and, and be able to fall asleep without being, you know, frightened or anxious is, is impossible. You can't do it. Um, they don't know what's happened to them. They don't understand why their mum suddenly is rejecting them. Um, so, so I think that's quite traumatizing for both mums and babies when they're, if they're suddenly told, just stop doing this, you're doing something wrong. So usually they've got to sort of rationalize to themselves somehow a way in which they can continue to be there for their baby at night with perhaps not being quite on the same surface. So having, you know, the sidecar crib at the side of the bed, or they just ignore the advice and go, well, we've been doing it this long. We're going to carry on doing it anyway. I feel like that, that crisis you speak about, I see it in families all the time, the guilt that they feel over it. And it almost all the benefits of bed sharing end up being lost Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they don't sleep as well. They're no mm-hmm. longer getting that better sleep. They're terrified the whole time that something's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. They talk about, you know, honesty with, with health professionals and research and whatnot. They're not honest about any of it unless mm-hmm. you happen to be someone who's not going to judge them. They lie through their teeth to everyone. And it feels like that's a really dangerous path to be going down at a societal Ooh. level of, mm-hmm. of all of it. Mm-hmm. I also think, I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but because you guys have changed in the UK, which I love because Mm. there is some guidance on safe bed sharing. But because the messaging here, there are there are pockets where it's happening. But Mm -hmm. the messaging here is so anti that I also feel we're doing harm by not providing the right information Mm. to families as it goes. And I think about families I've seen where they know they're told put your baby in the cot next to the bed in a little bassinet. But when you breastfeed, you have to get up and stay awake Mm-hmm. And don't you dare fall asleep holding your baby. And mm-hmm. these are all impossibilities. Yeah. But when we yeah. think about the things that affect sleep, you know, it's you're going to fall asleep with your baby yeah. at some point where you're breastfeeding, right? I mean, I think that's yeah. fair. Yeah. It's so horrific. It's, it makes both of you fall asleep. You can't help it. Exactly. But what and parents were telling us here was that, but you know, in the days when we had that kind of messaging, it was driving them to, to the couch in the living room in the middle of the night, and they were falling asleep in much more hazardous circumstances than they ever would have been if they were flat on the bed with the baby next to them. 
in a, with a clear space around it, you know. So it, and, it became it became quite evident here that that the messaging was actually um, causing more problems than than good. Um, and that's exactly. I think that that's part of it. And then what I see here are the stories where things have gone wrong are then warped into seabed sharing is bad. So I think about mm -hmm. a case a few years ago, a mom went very vocal anti bed sharing because she had done the, my baby was next to me in a bassinet, but I picked her up to feed and I fell asleep and baby suffocated, unfortunately, and, and died. And instead of seeing it as the problem was with the advice of me sitting upright and then falling asleep, we weren't in a safe position, even though we were in bed, it became see how dangerous bed sharing is. Bed sharing is yeah. And it's like, but that's not what bed sharing is when done mm -hmm. in a safe manner. And yeah. yet we're setting people up for these situations that are, are not helpful mm -hmm. um, with respect to SIDS. I mean, it's almost like adding more risk in many ways. Yeah. And do you know from the research, how many people actually follow the guidance to a T? Um, almost nobody. I mean, I've just, this um, this um, study that I've just been um, uh, looking at in Australia um, found that not only did people not follow, they've got six messages over there, it was in Queensland, um, and not only did people, the vast majority of people not follow all six messages, they didn't even know what all <coughs> six messages were. So they couldn't possibly have followed them, even if they, you know, wanted to. So, you know, we're not doing a very good job at informing people in a way that they can accept and remember and then can implement. Um, certainly here in the UK, at the time we changed the guidance in 2018-19, the list of instructions was so long of things that parents had to avoid doing that it was just too complicated people couldn't get their heads around it they didn't understand why they were being told all of these things and of course in the current context when SIDS rates have fall, fallen dramatically over the last 20-30 years they don't see it as a priority because nobody knows somebody whose baby has died anymore you know when I was a kid my mum's friends you know amongst their circle there was always a couple of people who's, who'd lost babies. And I can remember the, the, the siblings of friends dying, you know, when I was, you know, I can remember three people in my school whose, whose mums had who lost babies when we were kind of around between eight and 12, probably. So, you know, you knew, you knew that babies sometimes died suddenly and unexpectedly. And nowadays... It's not something that has touched most people's families. So they don't have the same concerns or awareness about it. And so they don't prioritize um, the safe sleep guidance in the same way. And that means that if we, we lose all of that knowledge, SIDS rates are going to start going up again because people are putting their babies on their fronts, you know, and they are putting them in, in, um, padded sleep spaces and all of this kind of stuff um and and they're becoming quite popular again and they people get a bit um shirty when you say you know it's dangerous and well, all my friends do it and none of their babies have died it's, but i wonder how much of this comes because 
honestly, the messaging has just come down to bed sharing recently. Mm. It's like people treat it that if you don't bed share almost everything, else, eh, you're fine, right? I mean, this is, we have created this one message, which is not a strong evidence-based message, mm. but mm. that's been the defining feature for, I mean, I've, I've, again, you talk to families and I hear it too. They're like, oh, well, I'm not worried about, you know, bumpers or yeah there's teddy bears in there or there's blankets in in the cot that i'm not worried about i can't bring them into bed mm. and it's like, but it's interesting yeah actually I, I think we might do better if we just kind of flip that around let's get mm. rid of all <laughs> stuff and everything and and bring them into bed and that might make it a little bit easier but it really comes down so with that i want to ask and and i think there's a link to sleep training that i don't know we'll get to talk about here but i do think that these guidances leave people with no other alternative mm -hmm. to get yeah. out with that. Um, but I did want to ask about how we balance the risk of some of these recommendations when people can't follow guidance. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I remember asking this in, in your webinar, which we're going to talk about too, because I want every professional to take that um, with time. I will try to be as quick as possible here. But there are cases like you think about babies with reflex or mm -hmm. silent reflex where being on their back is, they scream blue murder. Mm -hmm, They're mm -hmm, terrified. Mm -hmm. And what I think because the messaging has been so absolute, it's not about risk reduction and kind of yeah. balancing risk. It's treated as an all or none. You just don't do certain things. How does that affect families when they have things yeah. like reflux that might impact how they are able to incorporate these guidelines? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, there are some things that that are, are barriers to implementation, and I think they're they've not been well researched. Um, I mean, the reflux one is is one that kind of comes up quite frequently, um, but you know there are in here the babies who die now, the babies whose deaths are categorised as SIDS, are the ones who are at risk for all sorts of other things as well. You know, they're, they're on safeguarding registers, their families are living in makeshift accommodation or, you know, there's kind of domestic violence. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the most difficult to protect babies, if you like. Um, and I don't know whether that's, whether that's true in, in North America. Some of the, some of the data suggests that, that, that you're getting to that point, that you've reduced, that, you know, you've, you've it's kind of like we've picked off the easy wins and we've got the most difficult circumstances now to try and address. And for those families, there are many barriers to implementing, <coughs> not least of which is that for many of them, there are mental health issues, there are drug and alcohol addiction issues, and the baby simply can't be prioritized to the degree in which most families prioritize their baby's needs. And, you know, that that is a huge barrier to kind of how do you help them prioritize this baby's needs when sorting their head out, getting their medication or getting their next fix of whatever it is that they're addicted to is much more important to them than whether they've put their baby down on its back or its front. So, you know, that's what, that that's what, I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because that's what we're grappling with in our next research project, which starts next week. <laughs> it's very timely then but it, I, I think that's a really good point because it does feel like we've gone beyond like as you said the, the simple wins so mm -hmm. now it's become an issue that is far more convoluted 
far more difficult to disentangle and requires a lot more from society, it sounds like, mm -hmm. than just mm -hmm. the kind of personal responsibility of families, yeah. which is how it's. Yeah. And so that's a shift in messaging that I'm sure has to occur because we can no longer say SIDS is the fault of the family. Yeah. Um, it's not you not following parents, guidance. Yeah, parents wrong. have pretty much done all the things that they can do now. Um, and, you know, some of some of the barriers like reflux, et cetera, you know, the, the parents who worry about those things the most are probably the families whose babies are the least at risk. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So in that's... terms of, you know, in, in terms of in terms of what we say to them, a lot of what we can say to them is to be so anxious. You know, the chances that anything's going to happen to your baby if it's like that rather than like that are really minuscule. And where we need to be putting our attention now are the people for whom it's the, you know, it's the structural sort of um, inequalities that are the, the big issue. They yeah. just don't have someplace safe to put their baby. They just can't prioritize their baby's needs. And that's yeah. so I think that brings me because I know we're we're at time here and I want to be very respectful because you you have a lot going on. Um, but you have a webinar that is geared towards educating professionals and parents. Parents can take it too, correct? I know it, it take it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's through basis. Now, sure. just very briefly, it is I, I will just add, I've taken it and it's absolutely brilliant. And so I always say I have told families individually pass it along to your doctor. Let them take it because chances are you will have a better relationship if they actually take this because you'll be able to talk to them about these things from an evidence-based perspective. Mm -hmm. And because it's geared towards professionals, mm -hmm. they don't have to feel like they're taking something for parents when they think they're well beyond that and don't need to, uh, to take that there. So it is truly wonderful um, in understanding the kind of gray area that is SIDS research. But You've done a lot of work on this. And so out of just curiosity, because you've been running this for several years now, do you have you seen change in professionals from being able to offer this? Do you see a shift in the messaging, a shift in their understanding from these these types of webinars? Yeah. And the 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 biggest um, response that we get is that health professionals didn't feel confident in their knowledge in order to have conversations with parents. So they would tell parents very black and white instructions like we've been talking about, do this, don't do that, et cetera, because they were uncomfortable having the conversations about the nuances, et cetera, explaining the reasons or thinking about alternatives if you know parents couldn't implement X or Y or didn't want to implement X or Y. Um, so it's so what it seems as though the, the health professionals are getting from it is some some knowledge that gives them confidence to be able to go and have those frank conversations with parents about what are the things that they're doing that might increase the risk? Why are they doing them? What can they do instead? Do they need to worry about it? Do they not need to worry about it? And they feel more secure in their ability to kind of judge that situation. They know what to ask parents about. And, yeah. And so what are you hoping moving forward? What would be your ideal with this kind of, you know, what you offer to professionals? What What is the hope that all professionals can get to? 
I think um, I would like to see health professionals having these um, risk minimization com uh, conversations with families, not just giving them a one size fits all message, tailoring the information that they're giving around, you know, um, the circumstances of the family and their particular needs and, and, and what is and what isn't um, really essential for them to be paying atten attention to with regards to safe sleep so that the families can make those informed choices. I think to me, that's the way we've got to go is to, to, give people information to make informed choices, not give them black and white, one size fits all sort of dogmatic um, instructions. I don't think those have been working. They certainly haven't been working around bed sharing. Um, and as, as parents are, are now starting to reject some of the other messaging because they don't see the need for it because they don't know anybody whose baby has ever died, um, I think more of the conversations are going to have to go in that direction because, first of all, you've got to persuade parents that it's something they need to care about. You know, it's, I almost feel like the way you described if your doctor isn't having that kind of conversation, they're the doctor you want to present the webinar to <laughs> because I think it's probably... But I, I'd never thought about the lack of their own comfort in having the conversation. Mm -hmm. I would have, you know, you always hope that a doctor is going to be able to say, yeah, I'm really just, I don't know enough to have this conversation with you. I'm going to have to go back, but it sounds like the default instead becomes just don't do this. I'm going to fall mm -hmm. back on my, mm -hmm. my guidance. So if you have a doctor doing that or any health professional, it may be a psychologist, it may be a lactation consultant, it may be whoever if they are speaking about it in dogmatic terms, it may be a really good way to kind of realize, okay, maybe I need to seek information from elsewhere on this mm -hmm. because it sounds like they're defaulting to something and they don't necessarily have that knowledge. Yeah. Um, if that's fair. So now you also offer another webinar on normal infant mm -hmm. sleep. Yeah. And that is also geared towards professionals and Helping them and have parents. conversations with parents about what is normal in terms of infant development, yeah, uh, sleep development, and helping parents to manage their expectations around the fact that, you know, they're not all, all not all babies are going to start sleeping through the night at three months of age. And what is sleeping through the night mean in the first place? And, you know, and it isn't at this linear progression until they're you know 18 that they'll keep sleeping more and more but it's more like a roller coaster and all of these kinds of things so you know just helping health professionals have enough information around what is biologically normal for babies that they can share that with parents in a helpful way and so i will have links for both of these and you you run them a few times a year it's not yeah, yeah it's a rolling not. program so you can pretty much start one every month and they you get access to the materials for a month or so or two weeks two three weeks months. i think it was yeah. yeah um yeah. and then you then you have a live discussion where you talk with the other health professionals who've been who've been doing it at the same time as you to share tips and ask questions and then yeah yeah that's it and I will add that if you know you do have a doctor that you don't feel comfortable talking to as as Helen said these are for parents too. You can take these webinars and get the information yourself to hopefully feel confident, avoid some of those crises moments that we were talking about. If you are someone who is bed sharing and feeling guilt about it because of SIDS, you may want the information um, as to 
what really is going on in terms of the research there, how you can minimize risk, et cetera. Thank you so much. Helen, I cannot, I, 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 sorry, I know we've gone over a bit here, but I am just, this is such an important topic. And I mean, I could go into even more. There's a question of people that are criminalizing it now. And mm-hmm. as I said, sleep training, but maybe we'll save that for another day. Um, Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> they're big topics. It is, I just always love your, everything you say is, it's so clear and so thought out and so nuanced and so comforting. Um, I, I don't, even when it's bad news, like the research is all bad, somehow that's comforting coming out of your mouth. <laughs> I know. So it's lovely. But um, I am just, I'm so thankful for you to take the time to talk about this because it is, as I say, it's such an important conversation. And I am always, every time I, I meet a new family, it is just one of the things top of mind. There mm. is immense fear and you know, it is people going from one direction to another, total fear about it, to ignoring guidance all around because Mm -hmm. they don't see it. Because I think it does come down to the fact that there is no gray in how we Mm -hmm. talk about it here. It is so one or the other, you get terrified and then you have to just let it go because mentally, how do you reconcile Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. things together? So. Well, thank you for talking about it and bringing it to the attention of all of these different audiences. It's you know, there's, it's one thing to do research, but it's another thing to kind of get it out there to the people who need it. So, you know, you play, play a really important role in that. Well, thank you. I, I hope so. And I always say, you know, I'm always happy that people actually want to hear the research. It's such a, in today's world, it sometimes feels like research is getting a bad rap um, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. certain circles, but I'm glad not all because it is so important to know what's happening and to hear it from people like yourself who are doing it. It's not you know, the layer of it's not a journalist interpreting what you've mm, written somewhere mm. and then putting their own spin on it with a headline that is flashy. It's we get to hear what actually is going on, even if it's not quite as flashy. Although this one I always feel is like mind blowing oh, yeah. to me how we have taken something so that is just not evidence based at all, really. I mean, and put it into such black and white mm-hmm, dire mm-hmm. circumstances. Yeah. So I think it's really important to get this out. And thank you so much again for your time, your knowledge, your expertise. And if you have not checked out Basis, please go check it out. And there are downloads as well. We've talked about the webinars, but there are information sheets you can download um, that you can present to others. If you have a new parent that you know, download some stuff and pass it on. This is a mm-hmm. really great resource for all families because it is you know, non-judgmental, evidence-based information that's there to help not to do anything else. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I cannot stress enough how invaluable the basis course on SIDS is, as well as their course on normal infant sleep. If you're interested in finding out more yourself, or you have a professional in your life who could use some more education on the topic, please check out the links in the show notes and share widely. Now join me next week as I welcome back Dr. Levita D'Souza as we discuss her work on how fathers experience and view attachment parenting. After all, it's not just for mothers. And for those who may want to get their partners on board, this may be the episode for you. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.